Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. I'm Sean Weiss, your host, and as always, I want to start by saying thank you all so much for tuning in and logging on and just hanging out with me for a little while as I get time with some of the most unbelievably influential and critical healthcare professionals in our industry. And today, I am graced with His Holiness's presence. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about the big guy. I'm talking about Frank Cohen. Computational statistician, renowned mathematician. The guy is the father, in my opinion, of advanced analytics. I've known Frank now going on, God, I don't know way, way beyond 20 years. Yeah. Um, fascinating story about how I met the guy. Maybe we'll talk about that. I'll embarrass myself um, a little bit later on. Uh, but really today, wanted to spend time talking with Frank and introducing him to all of you that may not know him because he's been involved in some of the biggest cases in healthcare from a statistical uh, sampling perspective and from a post audit extrapolation standpoint. <clears throat> so, with that said, my good friend, welcome to the program. Thank you, Sean. As always, it's an honor to be in your presence, my friend. Look at this the mutual admiration society here. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, Can't it is. All that. good stuff. No, but, um, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, as, as, I've gotten older, you know, uh, I've assumed uh, the the uh, grandfather uh, name, uh, uh, Papa, Pop. and you're Poppy. Poppy. Poppy Loco, so, my grandbabies. That's right. It's been a long, it's been a long journey, but I'll tell you what, it, it's gone by in what seems like a blink of an eye, Frank. Well, you know, the older we get... The faster time seems to go. Have you ever realized that? I, I do. And I mention that all the time to people about the fact that, you know, it just seems like when I was a kid, time stood still. And then so, you I know, hit, there, there's, there's truth to that. Because yeah. when you're one years old and then you go to two years old, you've increased your age by 100%. You've actually had to double your age, right? So when I, I go from 66 to 67, I'm going to increase my age by only about 1.75%. So actually, while it feels like time continues to be compressed and go faster on the right side, it's true. Yeah. It's true because the change in a year is is one fiftieth of what it was when I was yeah. when I was a baby. So you know, so yes, it's there's a reason for it. It makes mathematical yeah. sense anyway. It does. It does. So. 
<clears throat> Maybe I'll start off by telling the story about how I met Frank Cohen. So Frank used to have these groups that would come together. Well, you're not going to tell, tell him how he bailed you out of jail the first time I met you, right? No, that was the second time. Second time. Okay, so go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. The first time I was well-behaved. So I hope you remember this as well as I do. So I came down to your group that was several days long. And the reason why was I was working for a company back in 1996 called the Medical Management Institute. And I had a pretty young boss by the name of Brent Garrison. And I had I said that. to him, yep, Brent, you know, there's something going on in the world of healthcare. And it really is, you know, looking like data is going to drive everything in the future. And I don't know if it's tomorrow or a year from now or 10 years from now, but I feel like we should be ahead of the curve. And Brent was a young guy, 27, 28 at the time. I was only 22 years old. And he said to me, all right, Weiss, go ahead and sign up for the course. Get yourself a ticket in a hotel. But just be prepared when you come back on Monday that you're going to need to educate all of the consultants on what it is that you learn. And I was like, yeah, all right. Now, keep in mind, I have a hard time adding two plus two. I was now embarking on a journey into predictive analytic modeling, statistics, advanced mathematics, and and just a world that I had no idea about. So I sat in this, this group meeting for several days, and at the very end, I was the only person left, and Frank was packing his stuff up. Yep. And he says to me, Sean, you okay? And I said, I'm in big trouble. I think I used some other term, but I said something to the effect of I'm in big trouble. And you said, what's going on? I said, well, I've sat here for, you know, X number of days, and I absolutely have no clue as to what I learned. And now I'm responsible to go back and teach 20 consultants everything that I learned here. And I remember you stopped packing up and you said, you know what? Let, let's, let's start from the beginning. And I think you sat with me for probably another four hours and you gave me one-on-one -on -one education for statistics, predictive analytic modeling. We got to talk about how you created models for dog track racing and stuff tied to the mafia and it was just and and at that moment was the moment that i found my first true love frank cohen <laughs> <laughs> well that sounds pretty close but you know my motto you never let the facts get in the way of a good story so that sounds that's right. right that's right but but i got to meet susan yep that day as well yep and yep. susan is obviously frank's much better half much better. She is, she, yeah, Smarter, she's just an amazing, amazing and woman. Better looking, for sure. I'm not going to argue with you. All right, so let's get into some some meat and potatoes, right? As we say here in the South. Um, for me, you know, statistics 
plays a critical role in everything that I do because I am continuously engaged and retained by legal counsel all over the country to assist in strategic litigation defense. And as part of that, which includes building sampling frames, performing audits, determining error rates, and then assessing an extrapolation, a post-audit extrapolation for damages. But all of that is, for me, kind of a secondary thing, right? Because I've worked with you so long. But what I don't think folks understand you know, they, they read about using rat stats, right? And you just go to rat stats and you run some reports and you plug some numbers in. But rat stats is a fatally flawed program, right? It's it's an antiquated program. Maybe not fatally flawed, but it's an antiquated program. So let me let me start there. Can you can you give us some historical background on rat stats and really what it's for and how it's meant to be used? Well, it's been around for a long time and it's it's a statistical um um, you know, analysis type program. Uh, actually, they just came out with a new release in 2019. They made some updates, but there's problems with it. Um, recently, actually, recently I tried to do an extrapolation with it. Uh, it was a variable assessment extrapolation on a stratified sample, and it just wouldn't work. And I wrote in on January 6th. I wrote to. Um, uh, the folks who, you know, to OIG or whatever the help email address is on it. And I finally got a response two weeks ago. <laughs> so five months later, six months later, and they said, yeah, we know this is a known flaw or known problem. Um, we're working on fixing it. But I mean, RAT stats is, is a good program for the basic parts that it's designed for, but more so in the area of, of actually creating um, a random number generation. But then again, Sean, I have a program on my phone where I can generate random numbers, you know, without a problem. Um, Microsoft Excel will generate random numbers. Any program will do it. The problem, the main problem that I see with RAT stats is that it's designed to work around something called a hypergeometric distribution. And what that is, is that's where you do sampling without replacement. And it's sort of a follows a normal or near normal distribution. But in healthcare, we don't find that. And the reason is because most everything we use is bounded on the left by zero. So, you know, most of the time they use paid amounts, right, in order to establish sample size or do stratification. And what's the least amount that, that a physician can be paid for a service? It's zero dollars. Right. Well, what's the most amount? Well, you can theoretically go forever to the right, but to the high side, you can, I mean, I, I'm working on my right now where there were payments of zero, payments of nine cents, and then payments as high as $11,500. So you're always going to have that heavily right skewed um, data set. In fact, in a case we just worked on, um, the um, the Quick uh, wrote a, a position paper that was based on my report contesting the statistical sampling and overpayment estimate methodology. And they said, said, yes, of course, the data are not normally distributed, and they're almost never normally distributed in these types of, of audits. They're almost always right skewed. And I'm thinking, well, if that's the case, 
there's a different there's different methods that we use for sample size determination, for example, or or what would be stratification besides what they do. So so RATSAS is good for random number generation, but the the, the issue is when I work on like where there's a, a corporate integrity agreement and an IRO is doing the audit, they're required to use RAT stats many times. So you just sort of have to deal with it. That's just the way it is. Right. And, and, and you raise a good point because, you know, I'm serving right now as the IRO for uh, Lyles Parker, for Robert Lyles, for a group. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did the sampling. Into, yep. yep. You did the sampling and we're getting the audits done. Yep. And then we'll do our reporting to the Office of Inspector General for the first quarter of the uh, uh, settlement agreement. But let me ask you, um, when it comes to creating samples, is there is there a generally accepted standard that should be followed? Well, I mean, I uh, my go to um, statistical sampling bible, if you will, is is uh, is statistical sampling third edition um, by. Um, um, Oh my gosh. How did I just forget? Here it is. Here's the book, actually. I'm showing it to you, right? Um, and this is yep. by um, Cochran. It's called Sampling Techniques by Professor William Cochran, third edition. And it's kind of the go-to Bible for most statisticians, I think. Even even in the, uh, the program integrity manual, they use it as a reference. A lot of the state Medicaid audits, they refer to Cochrane. And there's a lot of stuff in Cochrane that deals with sampling methods. And, you know, what happens is the government uh, auditors, the contractors, and even in the private sector, they don't really abide by this. They, what they'll do is they'll pull out a sample a, a formula and they'll put that on their document and submit that and say, here's the sampling technique that we use. And almost always, almost always, they're using sampling techniques or calculations that assume a normal distribution, and and that's why we have we have such a problem with um with this, you know. So so coming out of Cochrane's book is something called Cochrane's theory, right? Well, yeah, it's his, but but he's got different methods um, for for sampling, and then there's there's studies that have been done that have departures. For example, forever there's been this idea that you, all you need is a sample size of 30 in order to have a sample size adequate enough to satisfy the central limit theorem, right? The central limit theorem, I don't want to get into the weeds here in theory, but the basic concept is this. If, let's say I have, I have a sample. Uh, I have a universe of whatever, 10,000 units, and I take a sample of 100. The question is, so let's say I take a sample of 30. The question is, um, is a sample size of 30 adequate enough, um, appropriate enough for that uh, particular database? And it's not really dependent so much on the size of the, of the universe. It's more dependent upon the homogeneity of the units within the sample frame. How similar are those units? And unfortunately, most time we use paid amounts, which is not the best, but that's the easiest. And that's what the contractors use, because most of the time they don't have statisticians doing this. They just have staff that's members right. who who follow a policy and procedure manual, they take the, num the numbers, they plug them in, following sort of a recipe, an algorithm that they have, and they produce a, re um, uh, a sample. They never test it to see if it's valid or any 
that kind of stuff. But, let, but let's back to it. Let's say I have a sample of 30. What I would do is I would pull, let's say, I would go to my computer and say, okay, give me a random sample of 30. Now give me another random sample of 30 and another and another. And I might do that a thousand times. So now I have the average paid amount for a thousand random samples. And the central limit theorem basically says that in order to use inferential statistics, and, and there are some exceptions to this, whether it's a finite population or not, but, but again, the basic context is, is that if I were to plot those thousand averages, would they be normally distributed or not? That's really the test. But when you use like um, rat stats, nobody, well, they don't test for that stuff, you know, and I always do. And, and a lot of times right. I'm working on one this morning, I'm working on one. And, you know, there's two audits. One, the sample size of 30 was adequate. The other, the sample size of 30 wasn't adequate, you know. And, and so now, now, you know, we have to challenge it on that um, be, because you're going to get a precision that's too big and it's, you know, it's just not going to be replicable and all kinds well, of problems come in. Well, let me ask you that. So folks hear all the time the term precision rating, right? Yeah. What is the difference between a precision rating versus an error rate? So an error rate, like on a sample error, is where I would simply take, for example, the the mean of the of the unit of interest, say the paid amount in the sample, and then the mean of the overpaid, for example, and I would calculate the difference between the two, and that would give me um, what would be like a sample error, right? I can I can take a sample, look at the paid amounts for 30, and the computer will calculate, or with my slide rule, will calculate a sample error, okay? The precision um, deals, it's the same thing, except that most of the time when we refer to precision, it's after some application of a confidence interval. So we might say, you know, the government's famous for using the lower bound of a one-sided 90% confidence interval uh, as as the um, a way to estimate what the overpayment amount is. And, and they do that because they know that we're going to argue that, wait a minute, you can't use the point estimate because you always have to have sample error. So it's somewhere between the lower bound and the upper bound, right? You know, on a 90% one-sided, which is really an 80% two-sided, you know, um, it, all we're saying is that there's less, there's a 10% or less chance that the overpayment amount would actually be less than you know, what that lower bound is, that kind of thing. So, so that's, that's sort of the application for that. Got it. Now, I've been around you for a lot of years. We've done tandem lectures together at mm -hmm. different institutions, different societies. And there's a word that you use, and you use it frequently. It's a word called heuristics. Heuristics. Can you give us a definition of heuristics? Well, a heuristic is basically what it used to be called, maybe would be called a rule of thumb, although I don't like that expression because of its origin, but, but in essence, it would be a rule of thumb. It means that there's sort of a standard way that things are done. Most of these audits that come out of the contractors are heuristic in the sense that they, they have a, a recipe and they just follow it the same way. Um, so they, they sort of have a similar way of doing things to solve what would be similar problems. The problem, the problem with that is that when you get, when you have a situation where you vary from what the normal would be, those rules don't apply anymore. 
or they need some kind of, of uh, adaptation to it in order to apply. And I just wanted to add one thing too. We talked about precision. Yeah. What precision really measures is replicability. How replicable is that sample? So if, if I have a, a sample of 30 and I find an, you know, there's an average overpayment of a hundred bucks per claim, and I were to do another one of those based on a precision, how replicable is it? And the higher that precision rating, like 25%, means that it's probably only 75% replicable, you know, replicable, where if it's a lower precision rating, it might be a higher replicability. So that's part of what we Got look it. at. And if you can't replicate something, um, you know, accurately, then I don't think you can apply extrapolation to it. So, so. I'm 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 hoping some of our listeners picked up on something that I picked up on when I was asking you to define heuristics and you said you know it, it's sort of like the rule of thumb but yep. I don't like you know I don't like it because of how it was derived and and right. I'm guessing that you're probably alluding to the fact that um there was a belief that under English law men were allowed to beat their wife wife with a stick as long as it was no thicker than their thumb. Is that, is, is that what you're yeah, talking about? Yeah, it wasn't really just English law. I mean, that existed in the United States. There, there are Southern states. I'm not going to get into naming right. states, but there are some Southern states where that, that yep. law was on the books for a long time. I think there's one where it's actually still yep. on the books, hasn't been removed. So, yes, I'm just not a fan of yep. that expression, but... You know, I don't do well with expressions, so <laughs> that's one no, that I know. I, I, no, you're not. Sense. You you are a very literal yeah. person, and yeah. but you know, for me, I I always I always you know during these interviews, I always want to try to listen and pick up on little things to, you know, uh, you know, always uh, take things to the next level. Now we hear a lot about um, different types of samples, right? And one that gets used a lot by the government, at least in a lot of the cases that I've seen lately, especially from the commercial payers, is something called a Monte Carlo. Yeah. Can you can you talk about what a Monte Carlo is? Yeah, it's not really a, a sampling technique per se. It's a way to test the sample. It's a Monte Carlo simulation. You know, I don't know if you, I think you saw this. I think I sent it to you. There was a report that came out from the OIG recently that talked about how some of the contractors used Monte Carlo and some of them didn't use Monte Carlo and they were inconsistent in their applications of it. And we've, we've used that argument um, uh, a couple of times recently with, with some ALJ hearings and um, we've done pretty well with, you know, with one of them, we did well, we, we actually prevailed in it. And that's kind of what the, what I was talking about before the resampling part. Resampling is a part of a Monte Carlo simulation. I don't really do the whole, Monte Carlo simulation, and that's where they're actually going in and seeing whether the lower bound of the 90, 90% confidence interval matches on the other ones. I do it to look at the average uh, of all the, the samples that we pull in order to determine whether or not um, the sample's large enough to be considered useful for inferential statistics, which is extrapolation. So that's basically what it is. It's, it's more of a resampling technique, the way I use it. Right. So, so it's basically used to model the probability of different outcomes in a process that's not easily uh, predicted based on um, an intervention from random variables, right? Right. So the, the auditor might say, we did this 10,000 times, Your Honor, and you know, um, we found that if we replicated this 10,000 times that, you know, in 90% of those, uh, we, the, um, the overpaid amount was 
um, no more than the bottom of that 90% confidence interval. And they do that. I mean, you know, there's legitimacy to it. I'm not arguing it. They're, they do it in order to to support their position that using that lower bound is a benefit to the provider. But you got to tell you, you know, that that is a um, um, that confusticates, if you will, the idea of using a lower bound because the lower bound doesn't benefit you if there shouldn't be an extrapolation at all, you know. I yeah. mean, so so let let me ask you this question then: if if it was up to Frank Cohen, okay, what would you establish as a process or as a protocol for a payer creating a sample size and then testing it or using simulations to determine its you know, um, its ability to be replicated and then to ensure that once we have the um, error rates, that when it's time to determine the extrapolation, that we can do this without running into a fatally flawed scenario. Because that's been one of my biggest arguments when I get cases from attorneys like, you know, uh, Jenna Milliger or uh, Amanda Wesh or Ron Chapman or Robert Lyles or, you know, attorneys from Nelson Mullins, whoever it may be, right? And, and and I'm always the first level of review before it comes to you, right? And I look at it and <clears throat> I think to myself, using what I know from, you know, my training and in, in, in education from you over the years and, you know, my, my time watching you, learning from you, reading your reports, those kind of things. You know, I look at that and, and, and I'm able to determine that, you know, the sample was fatally flawed. Thus, it led to a fatal flaw and an extrapolation. So if I said to you, you know, Frank Cohen, I, I am the new uh, administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, we have Chapter 8, Section 8.4.2 on the use of statistical sampling. If I gave you carte blanche and I said, what would you do? Simplistically, right? I, I don't want to take everybody into a different stratosphere. But what would you create as a process for creating a sample, testing the sample, getting the point estimate, and determining the extrapolation for overpayment? Well, I mean, I think the first thing to, to consider is that, and and I know you've seen this, we have recently in a few decisions that where you and I worked on the same ALJ case uh, appeal to the ALJ, where the ALJs and even the MAC says it in the appeals that they have to give deference to uh, the Medicare Program Integrity Manual. But here's here's the problem. The Medicare Program Integrity Manual, uh, Chapter 8 deals with statistical sampling and overpayment estimate. There are only nine pages, nine pages that are committed to talking about the guidelines for extrapolation. I, I just recently had the case and what they said was the, the the quick or whoever the contractor was doing the appeal said, well, you know, um, there are uh, the guidelines is what they said to a probability sample. Well, there are no guidelines 
to building a probability sample in chapter eight. There's a guideline that says you have to have a probability sample, but there's nothing in there that defines a probability sample. And and right. they might say, well, if it's a random sample, what does a random sample mean? Well, I mean, by definition, you can read in the, the typical, you know, definition is a random sample is where you have a, a series of units uh, where each one has an equal non-zero probability of being selected. And that, but, but that's just not true. I mean, that is randomization, but that's not random. So if it was up to me, what I would do is I would apply more, more statistical, not theory, but application to it. Nine pages, Sean, nine pages to describe the entire field of statistical sampling and overpayment estimation. That's right. My book, Cochrane, is 400 pages, and it's not even a complete treatise when it comes to this. In my bookshelf here, I have tens of thousands of pages in scholarly articles and books and references that deal with statistical sampling and overpayment estimation based on a number of different things. And, and obviously, we can't expect everyone to abide by all of it, but I would, I would change one thing in particular. And that is this comment that the contractors and the quicks always make every single time. They say, well, we're not obligated to do it the best way, only to follow the guidelines and to have a probability model. Well, you know what? If I'm going to ask a small business to pay back $4 million, then I at least am obligated to do it the best way. And that is a that is just a, um, a BS excuse for laziness. And, and you know, I, I obviously wouldn't say that during a testimony, you know, because we don't want to get personal about it, but that's, that's right. what we see. So if I was doing it, I would say, look, first of all, how do you construct your frame, right? You have to do that. Are, are the data points homogenous? Why are we using the paid amount all the time, right? I mean, I, I can show you, and I have where I could take the same procedure code that's um, reported by the same provider to the same payer over a year's time, and the payment amounts could be from zero to $500. It depends on the time of year and deductibles and co-pays and edits and, and you know, local coverage determination and all that kind of stuff. So we use the paid amount. That's a mistake. I would use things that are more uh, substantial. For example, the procedure code or the categories that we're involved in. I would have rules that right. say if we're doing home health care, we're doing it by the beneficiary, not by the claim or something. I would have it so that when we were doing sampling, um, for the most part, we would do at least two-stage cluster sampling, which means, let's say I want 100 claims. So first I take 100 beneficiaries at random and then one random claim for each beneficiary. Why do we do that? So that we're not inducing this, con violating the concept of independence. You know, I would I would apply this so that when we did sample size estimation, it was based on the distribution of the data. We don't automatically assume everything's normally distributed. You know, you, you know, there's this, this theory about 30 being a minimum. But if you look at, at this divergence from Cochrane's rule, you take the skew times 25 or the skew squared times 25, and then you can calculate a minimum sample size from something like that, which is more accurate. Right. Um, you know, when it came to stratification, I would do stratification based on some logic, but they don't. I would look at something like a Mahalanobis distances. I would pick the breakpoints 
where they were significant. I would look at a histogram and say, wow, looks like there's three specific different distributions going on in here, you know? And I would, I would, but that's not what happens. You know, they just, right. They just pick a number, any number. It's, it's capricious and it's, it's um, um, irrelevant mostly to, to the logic that should be applied to something like that. And then when it came to extrapolation, well, I would use yeah. the calculations that were, you know, dependent upon what the distribution looked like and, and what the variance, just, you know, I, I would just apply. Well, let me ask you this question. Statistics. Let me, but we don't have that in chapter. Yeah, eight. let me. No, we don't. And, and this is fascinating. And I'm asking you this for a reason, because I was in trial last week um, up in Detroit. And you and I haven't had an opportunity to sit down and, and die, you know, kind of, you know, um, debrief and, and, and pull apart you know, the prosecution's position on things. But let me ask you this question. Is it possible to do an extrapolation if you never created a statistical sample and tested on it? Could well, you legitimately yeah. do yeah. an extrapolation? So the question is, is an extrapolation appropriate under all circumstances? And, right. and it's not, you know, I, you, you would ask me a question I didn't answer. And that is the, the number one thing I would, I would impose as a, as a codified rule is when you do pull the sample that you test it first. There's all kinds of tests you can do. There's a, a student's T, two sample T test, or something called the Mann-Whitney, depending on distributions, or chi-square test. So, for example, the, I, would, I would look at the sample. And if we're using paid amounts, because that's what everybody's using, I would look at um, and see whether or not the, based on the mean and the standard deviation or the median and the interquartile range, whether or not the sample paid amounts really looked like the the paid amounts in the sample frame. I got, I got heavily criticized one time during a case because I used that language. And they came and said, well, Mr. Cohen said, whether it looks like, looks like it's not a statistical term. No, it's a colloquial term. You know, unless That's you're right. unless you're just looking for a fight, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's right. That's right. If I'm, let's say I want to, let, let me give you an example, Sean. Let's say that I want to determine what the fight or flight response looks like, the stress response looks, the fight or flight looks like for mammals that are placed under stress, okay? So I take uh, some duck-billed platypi, I guess that's plural, and some camels, and I take some dolphins, which are mammals, and some human beings, and I mix them all up in a sample frame. And you can get an average from that. I'm measuring what the adrenaline levels, the epinephrine levels are when they're put under stress in a fight or flight situation. But it's not going to be, it's not going to mean anything. It's not going to be relevant. So I can always get an average. I want to look at average gas miles. I could take your truck, right? And, and, um, and one of those cars that is gas and electric and everything in between. And I'm not going to get a true average that represents it. I get a number, but it won't mean anything, you know? And so all that's I'm saying right. is that yeah. we have to test. And that's what they never, ever do. And there are simple tests that can be done. I do a, um, a test for representativeness, a chi-square goodness of fit test. I look at all the procedure codes in the sample, and I look at the procedure codes in the sample frame. I just ask a simple question. Is the distribution of the procedures in the sample look pretty much similar to the distribution in the sample frame? And if they don't, if it doesn't pass the test, 
What do you do? Just pull another sample and test it again. It takes me five minutes to test a sample, Sean, and they never do that. And I can tell you that in 80% of the cases where I'm involved as an expert, I wouldn't even be there if all they had done was test the sample first and then if it was bad, we sampled. So they got something that was right. It's just. Well, you know, it, it goes back to a, a, a famous saying in the government, close enough is good enough. I guess so. Yeah. So um, you, you brought up ALJ hearings and, <clears throat> you know, I, I probably do four, between four and six federal cases a year. Um, you know, usually, you know, a lot of them are, are, are civil, but, you know, uh, once or twice a year, I have a, a big criminal trial that I get brought into. But the majority of my time is really spent on these administrative law judge here. Yeah. Right. Yep. And 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 I think that's the same for you. You you and I probably do about the same number of federal trials a year. Um, the the ALJs, would you agree with me that there is significant inconsistency from ALJ to ALJ and that's part of the systemic problem within the system is that because they're all de novo hearings, meaning they're not bound to prior precedent or legal ruling or decisions that they get to review the evidence in that case and make an independent decision absent any other precedent or any other legal standing in the community. Do you find that there's a significant uh, uh, level of um, variance amongst the ALJs in understanding of what you're talking about, for example, with statistical analysis and extrapolation? You know, it's interesting because it almost feels like there's less now than there used to be. Because I I believe this, and this was something, information that we got from a former ALJ, and I think you knew about this, that went to work for one of the law firms, who said that that they were sort of, that CMS applied a heavy-handed um, approach to telling them that they did not want them throwing out these extrapolations anymore because it was costing hundreds of millions, of, not billions of dollars. I mean, Sean, there was, a, there was a time five years ago when we would win 80% of the cases, the extrapolations would be thrown out. And then what, what started That's happening? Right. What started happening was they were all being appealed to the MAC, and in almost every case, the MAC would then overturn it, right? So they were telling these judges, these ALJs, they're saying, hey, you know, you can, you can throw out the extrapolation, but you can expect that it's going to get overturned and that's going to look bad for you every time it's going to come back to you. And we've had a few cases that have gone on to federal court because that's the last level. And we've actually won most of those in federal court when they've gone there, you know. So, so I think that the, I think what I'm finding is that the ALJs, for the most part, there's more homogeneity with regard to their thought process on these cases than there was five years ago. And I think that's because the CMS and the MAC have had quite a bit of influence over how they do things, you know? So, so having said that, having said that, because I've had several cases where, um, for example, the judge will say, yep, we agree with Mr. Cohen. They did this wrong and they did this wrong and they didn't follow standards on this and they didn't do that. And, and, you know, but, however, but. 
it is a random <laughs> sample. And, and if even though I'm arguing it's not random anymore, once you violate the development of the frame, once you create a fatally flawed frame, you can't have a random sample. You can have a randomized sample, but not a statistically valid random sample. But but they don't get that nuance. And so they're coming back and they're saying, well, yeah, you were right, you know, and they did a really terrible job and they're real lazy. But but it was a random sample and we have to give deference. This is what they always say. We have to give deference to chapter eight of the Medicare program integrity manual. And therefore we're gonna say it's a probability sample, nothing else matters. And I've had that happen more often than the last year or two than I ever did in the past. But we've had a few cases like this one last week, right? We got the decision, we won. They threw out the extrapolation. The judge said, yeah, Absolutely. you know, they, they didn't do it right. They They violated, and I hate to use the term standards of statistical practice because that is not a right. technical or even a so, okay. anyway. So right. that's 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 yeah. kind of the issue. So I think I think they're less different now because of the pressure that's been applied to them. But you, we still have truly independent ALJs. I mean, we were in front of an ALJ last week, and and this this judge was amazing, open minded listening to everything that had to be said, asked really intelligent questions, you know. And then I've had some judges that have been, I'm not going to say they're rude, but they're like, hey, you know, they've even said my caseload is so heavy right now, I don't have time for this stuff. I don't even go through my reports anymore. We don't have interrogatories anymore, Sean. I just prepare right. a testimonial summary of about 3,000 words and, and that's it. You know, that's all we're really able to do. So there's definitely a change coming. You know, I got another dozen scheduled this year, so I don't know what to expect at this point. Yeah, uh, you know, pe people don't realize, you know, how many hearings take place during the course of a year from an administrative, you know, standpoint with CMS. I mean, I average, I average about forty-five a year. Some years I have sixty. Um, you know, I've had one year where I did, I think, more than seventy hearings in a year. Uh, I think this this year so far, I've done 40, just over 40 hearings, and we're only halfway through the year. Right. So right. it's 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 absolutely unbelievable. Um, so right, right. Let, and then let part me, of that's because they're, they're required yeah. to catch up on this backlog by the end of 2022. So that's why that's all right. of a sudden, you know, we're getting all these hearings. Yep. So. Let me let me ask you a couple of uh, questions in closing here. Um, I think that we have absolutely entered into a new era in healthcare. I think we have over aggressive investigations and we have overzealous prosecutions. Yes. And audits. And well, yeah, audits. I was I was lumping audits. I should have said audits slash investigations. Where where do you, Frank Cohen, see things going over the next two years, five years, ten years in the world of healthcare auditing, investigations, settlement agreements, prosecutions, as it relates to the type of statistical work that you do? I think it gets worse for the doctors, for the hospitals, for the healthcare providers. The way I see it, it's it's going to get worse because, look, I I'm a statistician. 
I happen to be a fan of extrapolation. I mean, I love it. Extrapolation is a great thing as long as the process is, is correct. Think about it. If you take a good sample and it's representative of the universe and you do an audit and you extrapolate it to the universe, chances are if you were to have audited every single claim in the universe, you would have gotten a similar result, but it would have cost you a hundred times, a thousand times as much to do it. So I'm all for it, you know, and, and listen, I'm a taxpayer, Sean, I'm, Heck, I'm 66. I'm on Medicare now. So I want the trust fund to do well. And I'm certainly an opponent to fraud. Right. Or if you make a mistake, you got to repay it. But, but you know, the problem is, is that it's be, you talk about this idea of overzealousness in the auditors. Listen, we're still in a situation where, what, at least 50% of all of these overpayment uh, claims get overturned at the ALJ level. They get reversed back in favor of the provider. So if any other business had a 50% error rate on what they did, how would they possibly be in business? If our government contractors were building equipment for the military, building vests, making, you know, um, um, bulletproof vests for our soldiers, and 50% right. of them failed, how long would they have the contract, right? But that seems to be this sort of tolerance that we have. So I don't see it getting any better unless there's some kind of legislation Here's what my proposal is. Anything over a 10% error in the actual adjudication of those claims should be paid for by the auditor. They should have to pay back the practice. So you audit my practice. What a great idea. You find a 50% error, and then we go to an ALJ and there's only a 15% error, then you should be paying me back the difference between that, 25% of that you know, on yep. the cost of my audit should come back to me. But but that calls for accountability. And personal accountability just doesn't seem to be politically expedient. You know, that's my no. experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, 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 a tremendous point. And I think it's one that's going to be well received by our listeners. Um, Frank, I can't tell you how much fun it's been to get a chance to just BS with you for a little while and to get to see your smiling face and, you know, there to know is. that you're doing well. Doing better. <clears throat> there it is. There doing it is. Healing the, up. Healing up. Um, <clears throat> so this is going to bring us to the end of this episode of The Compliance Guy with my very special guest, Frank Poppy Cohen. Statistician. King of photography and all around tremendous human being. Thanks again, Frank, for being here today and taking time out of what I know is an extremely busy schedule to hang out with me and my listeners for just a little while. Been a blast. And call me. We'll do a little after action plan on the uh, this case you just did. I'd love to talk about it. Absolutely. I got to tell you what happened. It's it's unbelievable. And I can't wait to get my hands on the transcript. All right. Call. As I said, that's going to bring us to the end of this episode of The Compliance Guy. To each and every single one of you, thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of The Compliance Guy uh, and The Daily Dose. So stay tuned. And remember, until tomorrow, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. Take care.
You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.